With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to the show, brought to you, as always, by the great folks at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Today, we're joined by a former Aussie Rules footballer, renowned as one of the most spectacular high marks of his era. Arriving from Newland in 1968 as a skinny teenager, David Mackay didn't take long to establish himself as a star at Carlton before going on to be a key member of four premiership teams. The man known as Swan played 263 games for the Blues between 69 and 81 and now sits comfortably as a legend in the Carlton Football Hall of Fame. With his old club on fire late in season 2023, we thought we'd better get him on. David, welcome and thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you very much, Sam. What have you made of this roller coaster of a season from the Navy Blues? Some wanted the keys handed back in halfway through when they lost eight of nine and six in a row. We are speaking at a time where Carlton is now on an eight-game winning streak and they're sitting fifth. It's been remarkable. It's been an incredible turnaround because um, early in the season, particularly when they were missing easy shots for goal, I think everyone was just getting deflated week after week. Uh, but then, um, I'm not sure what happened, but I think it may have been uh, Ed Kernow organising a camp and uh, he got all the boys together and obviously they made a commitment to each other to be really competitive for the rest uh, the rest part of the, well, from the season from here on in. You know, you answer my next question. I was going to ask you what do you suspect the circuit breaker was because I'm not sure, with all due respect, you're the you're most qualified because pretty much all of your footballing life, you only had one losing season and I think even that was a 10 and 11 job. So you were blessed. I was very blessed. I came to Carlton at a very, uh, a very good time and, um, you know, it was a successful era. It's an iconic <clears> era, wasn't it? Yeah, when you when you watch the side of today run around, just as an observer, who are you drawn to? Um, look, you, you're always drawn to the star players. Obviously, uh, I'm, I'm interested in Harry Mackay for obvious yep. obvious reasons when he's playing. Yep. Uh, but Kerno is magnificent. But uh, look, some of the lesser lights. Um, although I must admit, uh, seeing blokes like Chera and um, Walsh, mm. just Walsh, just to see his work rate is just absolutely phenomenal. And um, I think his first his his quarter before he got injured was one of the best quarters I'd seen for quite a long yep. time. So um, look, they've just I'm not sure as you said it they've all, they've all gelled at the at the right time. It's been uh, remarkable. It, it's been incredible, and um, all credit to them just the way that they've gelled together and their their ability to pressure oppositions. And I think probably the last three games the uh, the Collingwood game, then the um, second half against St Kilda, and then last week against Melbourne was just outstanding with the pressure they put on quality opposition and yep. uh, forced them into error, which which had been happening to them early early in the season. Uh, and then they were able to capitalise on it and, uh, and outscore them. So, 
I think they've just been magnificent. And it's been system over personnel, hasn't it? Which you haven't been able to say about Carlton, I don't think, for a long, long time. That regardless of who's out there, or more importantly, who isn't out there, the team will play to the same sort of manner, if you like. Do you still get along most weeks, or you watch from home, or...? Pretty much watch from home. Yeah. I must have, must have been uh, nice no, from home nowadays. I don't it? mind going, but uh, <laughs> I did go to uh, Marvel Stadium once, and uh, uh, I was up in the top level. And I've, I've just discovered that people over seventy shouldn't be allowed up there. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's just a bit too steep. <laughs> steep up the top. But it's no, look. I, I enjoy watching it from the ground, but um, when you're watching it on television, you, I think you get a, you get an overall perspective. And, and if they're not particularly in the, the early part of the season, if they weren't playing well, you get to go and make a cup of tea. And uh... This is true. This is true. Uh, yeah, I have to ask, for my own sanity as much as anything, even though you would have been asked this hundreds if not thousands of times over the journey, where does the nickname come from? So where does Swan come from? So I look at it and I think, you know, you're the graceful high fly, did it come from that? Was it something sort of less appealing? What, what was the origins of the nickname? Well, I'd like to think of the more appealing one, but the less appealing one is true. We were doing laps one night and uh, Ricky McLean said, Mackay, you run like a chook with a broomstick up its backside. <laughs> I think I'll call you Swan. And that thing's, that uh, comment made in jest has stuck to me from there on in. Did it ever. <laughs> Blimey, it started like that. Man, income. So Newland is an hour and a half or thereabouts northwest of Melbourne and, and just north of Ballarat. It's also your home. So those big leaps, the skyscraping marks that we talk about that later would become your trademark. As a kid, though, was it being able to, to you know, sit on someone's head and take those big grabs that, that drew you to the game initially? What was your first love when it came to the game? Well, I lived next to the Newland football ground, so um, I used to spend a fair bit of time there kicking the ball to myself, as a matter of fact. Uh, there weren't too many young fellas living near, near to where I was uh, living, right beside the ground. So the imagination so I used to ran kick, wild. I used to kick the ball in the air and pretend I was Polly Farmer, and uh, when I thought football was simple, Farmer to Gog and to Wade, goal. Yep. Yeah, and so that was back then. As you progressed through the ranks, that was the was that the Clunes League Clunes back then. League. So obviously uh, zoned to Carlton, I think at the time. We were. I was very lucky because um, the Clunes Clunes was uh, in the Bendigo zone, and um, most of the area that I lived in was zoned to St Kilda. So it, an, an illustration is uh, Dalesford uh, was zoned, was in the Ballarat League. They were zoned. The young blokes there were zoned to St Kilda. Right. And Hepburn, four kilometres down the road was in the Clunes League and they were zoned to Carlton. So, there you go. Uh, so I was just on the, on the cusp of being a St Kilda player. So how did it, obviously you zoned to Carlton, but how did it look as you got closer to perhaps, you know, catching more eyes and more attention? Do you remember how you were spotted, who reached out, how the dialogue started with, with the Blues? Yeah, I, I was approached by, I think, by Collingwood and I actually trained with Essendon uh, one night and that, that was interesting. Uh, but I played pretty well in an interleague game and uh, the Carlton spotters there came and had a word to me, and I think I, I won the best player and ended up with uh, with an invitation to come down to train yeah. early next season. So you're doing, in 68, I think you're doing year 12 or whatever year 12 was called back then. You actually played a reserves game for the Blues, didn't you? I played one reserves game. And actually, I just noticed the other day, uh, uh, Vaughan Ellis, who I'd, I'd never really seen, I think he went to Dandenong after Collingwood. Yeah. He was playing in the Collingwood reserves that day, and he, he looked, to me, looked like a monster. And I thought, gee, <laughs> yeah, I'm in, for, in big trouble here, but... Look, it was a good experience, and uh, as I said, it st- stood me in good stead when I came back yeah. next year. I was a bit more prepared. Well, you did come back next year, but you must have done something right in that game and prior, because they tried to sign you then and there for, to stick around, didn't they? They wanted me to come down straight away, but uh, I wanted to finish my schooling. I was going to the Dalesford uh, Tech at the time. Dalesford Tech. <laughs> I'm sure mum and dad probably wanted you to finish too, did they? They did. So yeah. uh, they were keen to, me fin- to finish off, and uh, so next year I came down, and I was going to university for a while, so... Uh, it worked in well. And I think you said somewhere at the time that 
had your mar- you might have even used this phrasing had your marble been pulled out you might have even gone to Vietnam around this time was that uh, yeah well I was certainly uh, up for it because um, Noel Muir who I played with had his marble pulled out yeah uh, he came from Tasmania and um, he uh, he ended up going into the army so if that had happened to me I, I probably would have uh, I probably would have gone jeez sliding doors moments aren't they absolutely who knows where we'd be sitting if that had taken place I might flight. be sitting here indeed you're listening it was a yeah the world was so what year would that have roughly been? would that would that have been 60 68 yeah. 69 wow you're listening to This Is Your Journey. It's all thanks to Tobin Brothers. They are, of course, a family-owned business. They have been since 1934. So David Mackay's arrival at Princess Park is next. Stay with us. All right. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, great to have your company on This Is Your Journey. It's made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals at Celebrating Lives. We're the four-time Carlton Premiership player, David Swan Mackay. So, Swan, what a time to arrive at Carlton. They are, of course, the reigning premiers. The club's developing into a, a powerhouse at, at this time. Ron Barassi's at the helm. But just before we get to adjusting to, to VFL life, did they look after you when you came down from the bush? What, what did it look like, that sort of off-field welfare, you know, incentive space back in the late 60s? Uh, well, they found accommodation for me. With that a, helps with a, with yeah, with, a, with uh, a lady in West Brunswick, so I, I stayed there. It was certainly close to the ground. It wasn't ideal accommodation, but it was uh, it was a start. So, uh, but it was enough to make it worthwhile and palatable and all that sort of stuff. It was because I was I was going to university, so it was just a matter of um, somewhere that was close to football and close to La Trobe. Yep. So you came from obviously country Victoria. What about those who might have come far? What about those who came from interstate? What did the incentives look like for those guys who really had to trek across? Uh, I think they were always looked after a little better. Uh, yeah. Some of them got um, cars and some of them got even, I think, apartments and things. Of that apartments? Nature. Yeah. Fanningham. I won't mention names, but, <laughs> but some of them did pretty well. So. It was said that, you know, some players got the block, block of flats from back <laughs> in the day, didn't it? Well, I suppose it had to be, a, you know, to move from interstate was much bigger than moving from the country, particularly mm. if you were going to come to the city anyway. Yeah. Uh, so they had to make it worthwhile for um, for those players to make the transition. Indeed. So 69 mainly reserves. You played the half a dozen senior games. I love. You. So your first game's round three, 1969. Now, you'd be nervous at the best of times. Anyone would be for their first game. You're driving out to the Western Oval on this particular Saturday morning knowing that you're about to play... <laughs> Centre-half back on the man known only as Mr. Football, uh, Ted Witten, straight into the deep end, Swan. It was, and uh, look, I was, I was, must admit I was waiting for a whack around the ears to uh, welcome you to, to the VFL football as it was then. Uh, but look, he was, uh, he was near the end of his career, mm. and um, he was very lenient on me, and I've, I've admired him ever since, and luckily I got to know him pretty well later on in life. Got him on a good day? Um, I very, very much got him on a good day, or perhaps for him it might have been a bad day because yep. he was nearing the end of his career. But look, it was an absolute thrill to play on someone of that magnitude and basically just to hold your own. And I didn't get a massive number of kicks, but he didn't either. So, uh, you know, I think it was all okay. And you had a coach of enormous standing in the game, as I said, Ronald Dale Barassi. So how, how, did, how did Barass warm or relate to a laconic, easygoing kid from the bush in those early days? Uh, look, sometimes um, we had some, some issues, but look, most of the time I thought he was just fantastic. He was just an, an incredible coach to be involved with because uh, he had the ability to motivate uh, players with different personalities and get them to play together as a team. 
And I thought that was that was pretty special. You know, when you've got someone who is reticent as Bruce Stool and someone as flamboyant as John Gould, look, they're at either ends of the spectrum. And the way you can get th- those players to uh, just to come together and to play great footy, particularly on the games that, that count, really was outstanding. And he was, all, he was also such a, a charismatic uh, character that if there were ever any entertainers in Melbourne, they quite often were in the rooms on a Thursday night. Yeah, right. And it was just fa- a fantastic place to be around. Look, you never knew from one week to the next you know, who was going to be in the rooms on a Thursday night. It's a question without notice, but do you remember any of these? Like, who were some of the bigger names that popped, that popped their head in? Uh, well, I remember... I remember um, uh, Sidney Halen used to be used to be in there, and he'd do his uh, his, his leg twist that he used to do on right. Sunny Side Up, and people of that nature. They were just, uh, you know, yeah. uh, Joffrey Allen was always in the rooms. Probably a lot of people wouldn't remember those names, but like they were they were household names uh, back in the sixties and seventies uh, in television in Melbourne. Barassa's training methods was it said it was said I think that warm up used to consist of a bit of kick to kick. What markers up at either end was it? That was fantastic. <laughs> I used to try and get there very early. <laughs> For the kick to kick? The kick to kick was just uh, terrific. And he was just as competitive as everyone else. Well, you take a hanger on him? Uh, oh, that was your aspiration always, to take one over Brass. <laughs> over the coach. <laughs> yeah. Be brave. But he, uh, he'd also then try and uh, take one over you. But I was always wanted to get there early and I always wanted to see where Ian Robertson was because he kicked the most magnificent drop kicks of all time and uh, they travelled so truly, you could get a run in and uh, go straight for them and it was, he was uh, he was just magnificent. Yeah, jeez, there you go. 1970, the, the grand final obviously lives on, it, it probably as, as well and as vividly as any other in history, I would contend. It happens to be the first of your five on, on the big day. So it's Carlton and Collingwood, of course. Um, and in fact, your, your five grand finals only came against two sides, didn't they? Collingwood and Richmond, you saved it for those two. But 1970, it's amazing to look at the attendance from back in the day. 121,000 were there. Yeah, there was only a bigger crowd for one other event at the MCG. Just incredible crowd. 121.696 watched Carlton play Collingwood in the 1970 grand final. The margin's well remembered, of course. Collingwood by 44 at half time. Now, how many did your opponent, Len Thompson, have at that stage? He was giving you a few headaches early, wasn't he? Uh, yeah, look, he was... Uh, he, he's a very very good player, like a Brownlow medalist, so I knew I was up for a, yep. a, t- a tough game on him. Fortunately for me, uh, during the week, he'd had a leg injury, and uh, he had it treated, and, and uh, th- there was a big rash on the side of his leg. So I didn't really want to get too close to him. <laughs> but, uh, but Is that no, what you told Barasset after him? <laughs> <laughs> no, but he was um, he, he played well and he, he provided a focal point for them. But uh, we just heard the other day that uh, un- incredibly at halftime, I think a message came out to the players, no handball, which was quite in, quite in contrast to what our message was. We, really? We actually go for the handball. So. No handball. We've just completed a, doc- a documentary um, at Carlton on the 1970 grand final, long overdue. Peter Dixon's company has, has completed yep. it. It hasn't yet come to air, but it should go to air soon. And both Collingwood and Carlton players were interviewed for the documentary. So, uh, And I think Twiggy Dunn mentioned that um, the, the message came out, no handball, which seems to be quite incredible. Well, hang on. So the message at halftime from Brass, though, was do exactly that, was it not? You, well, were, you were kicking it back to them as two-stop start, two-kick mark. Exactly. Run the ball. It was it was not just handball, but it was play on at all costs and make sure we get the ball moving so yep. we could get over the wall that they were setting up and making it difficult for us to, to get the ball quickly into the forward line. And what were you telling yourself? Because history would say that you go on to have 18 touches, uh, stack of marks, nine marks, and you're deemed best on ground. So what were you telling yourself at the main break? Um, look, I, I, I thought we were in a bit of strife. But look, uh, Barassi just... One thing he said, and I think it, was, uh, it wasn't halftime, but it was at three-quarter time, he said, uh, win, lose, or draw, I'm proud of you, blokes. And 
we all thought, lose or draw? You've got to be joking, mate. And um, and I think Kevin Hall told him, look, clear off. We're, we're in charge of this now and uh, we'll uh, we'll go ahead and win the game. We weren't ever thinking of losing or drawing. Yeah. Was that all, a- it's, it's incredible, but we always had belief that we could go on and win it. I, I'm not sure why. And it wasn't just me. Hmm. It was all of the other players had the same sort of belief. Amazing day. And I imagine you could, when did you f- suspect that, not that you had them where you wanted them, but that the wheel had actually started to turn. Was it within the first five minutes? Um, in the in the third quarter, yeah. I think we'd kicked, after Hopkins had kicked a couple of goals, the crowd started to chant Carlton, Carlton, Carlton. We were still behind, mm. but uh, I think, I'm not sure how the other players felt, but to me it sort of lifted you another foot off the ground because, you know, the crowd could could sense that something special was happening. And um, when Hopkins finished up kicking four goals, he, he made a massive, uh, it was a massive injection into the game. And even that's the story in itself because, oh, yeah. Yeah. because um, he wasn't actually, Bert Thornley was uh, was running out and, and uh, as he was running out after half time, Brass said, Bert off, Hopkins on. Yeah, he saved it late, didn't he, the change? And he didn't, he didn't consult with the match committee. And I think Jack Rout said uh, halfway through the third quarter, what's Hopkins doing out there? And uh, Brass said, I put Hopkins on and, uh, and took Thornley off. Do you suspect that's why he did it so late, just to slip one through that didn't have to be uh, a strap? I think it was just one of those spur of the know, moment spur of the moment decisions that uh, was actually ended up being uh, an absolute uh, game breaker. Jones is there. Now the Teddy Hopkins and Arnie Man. He's got the goal. Good play on that kick's part. Snapped it off the back of the pack. Good anticipation. Hopkins comes out with a kick smaller by Jackson. Jackson goes after it now. Look at this fella go. Jackson a long head pass to Hopkins. Hopkins steadies. Hopkins kicks. It's me. He's put it through. Four goals for Hopkins. The game's famous for Jez's mark, of course. I hope you've since told people that your kick to him, um, Swan, wasn't a mongrel finger-breaking pump, but a perfectly weighted kick that just nestled into the great man's hands. If only it was true. Jez actually has described it as a mongrel up-country pump. <laughs> right. And try and say that if you've had a couple of drinks and not say, make, a, make a mess of it. Carefully pronounce that one. <laughs> Is that right? Because you can't... TV does it no justice and it's out of shot for a while, but it was a shocker. It was... Well, it was a long torpedo... Because we were, uh, it was on the wing, and uh, I just kicked, just tried to kick it as long as, as long as possible into the forward line. Isn't that amazing? Bold play by today's standards, oh, straight yeah. up the shoot. Yeah. Oh well, you, you, that's the only way to go. Like, yeah. Uh, Brass had the, the Norm Smith rules: attack, direct, defend wide. Four out of five hit the ground. Run to attack. Run to defend. Uh, they, they were the first time I'd ever encountered team rules, and uh, they were basically common sense rules. Uh, the one I didn't like was if you're behind punch. Yeah, that's right. How often did you break that one? <laughs> well, Brass used to say, I don't mind you making a mistake, but never make the same mistake twice. Yeah, right. And uh, it, was it a mark, just coming back to it, that you, you had an appreciation of at the time? And I, I, I dare predict not, given the, the hectic nature of the game and you're trying to win the game. Was it one that you probably realised afterwards just how iconic it might uh, live on? I didn't think he was going to play it, Mike. He was spot on. Okay. To the wing position on the member stand side. Oh, just a link Oh, absolutely! I was, I was, you know, I was a fair way from it. It was a, you know, a fifty or sixty yard kick, and uh, you know, I, I knew Jez had marked it, but 
I, I didn't know the significance of it. And I didn't realise how high he jumped over Jerker to actually you know, to take the mark. Yeah. And, you know, later on just seeing it, it's just a magnificent mark. We're with Carlton legend David Mackay on This Is Your Journey. It's all thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Well, a busted jaw, a wild day at Windy Hill and a clearance standoff is all up next. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Journey. Today's guest is former Carlton High Flyer, David Swan Mackay. So, David, the 1972 campaign that you're a part of at the Blues is just remarkable. You lose three times in the home and away season. There's a draw against Collingwood in round two, a draw against Richmond in the semi-final before you beat them in the replay and then face them again in the grand final. Now, in this grand final, the Blues have kicked 18 goals to half time, and you lead by 45 points, but... That's remarkable in itself. But at the main break, you weren't feeling you weren't feeling the greatest, were you? No, I wasn't because I think uh, 10 minutes into the second quarter, uh, we just kicked a goal at the city end and um, uh, Neil Baum, who I was playing on, started pushing me around and I was uh, foolish enough to say, mate, you wouldn't have a spark jumping the gap between your ears. Well, he obviously took exception to the remark because the next thing I knew, I was on my knees spitting blood and ivory. Yeah. And um, so, uh, you know, basically I played the rest of the game with a a jaw that was hanging down. I went in at half time and showed the doctor, Billy Briglier, and he said, uh, yeah, your jaw's broken, but um, Vinnie Wade's just gone down with a broken ankle, so, mate, can you just go out and just do your best for the next half? And I said, well, I don't really want to, but I will. So I did. Yeah, so in those days, could they give you anything at all? Did you... No, no. They'd, like these days, they'd at least put a strapping around your head to uh, to try and provide some protection, but <sighs> it didn't happen. And the incredible thing was in the, uh, I think, in the third quarter, uh, down the city end of the gr- the ground, I, I um, was flying for a mark. I was just making a half half hearted attempt. I put my knee up in the air, and uh, Royce Hart, for some reason, got right underneath me, pushed me straight up in the air, and I ended up taking the most uh, photographed mark of my career and the one I least wanted to take. I was going to say the landing wouldn't have been. I pretty... came down and I was holding the ball with one hand and my jaw with the other. Damn, so do you remember? This is talk about things from. This just wouldn't happen now, but. Do you remember the feeling in the? Was it really slack? Like, did, can oh, I ask? Yeah. It was was hanging down, so it had broken between the, the the front teeth and the side of the jaw. So it was was hanging down. And a level of pain out of ten, ten out of ten being extreme, you know, one out of ten being nothing. What was the rating? Um, I'd say the rating wasn't that bad. It was probably five or six. Out really, of 10, but it was worse after after I got it wired up the next week. At week and the uh, it started to knit. So um, the pain was extreme when um, when it was. Pulled back into shape. Jeez. Would have made it hard to celebrate too. Um, I was drinking everything through a straw, and I actually <laughs> even had pies and pizzas <laughs> what? minced up. And minced up. If you've ever minced them up with a with a vitamizer, it doesn't matter what it is; they all taste the same. Oh no! I couldn't put the pie in the vitamizer. <laughs> Unbelievable. So that was a bit unsavoury. Speaking about the unsavoury side of the game, there was another famous or you know infamous day a couple of years later out at Windy Hill, wasn't there? So this was. Round 14, to be precise, 1975. So to set the scene for people listening, it's wet, it's windy, it's a miserable day. Eight players are reported, including you. However, meanwhile, you kick eight from 22 touches and 14 marks. This was a day of absolutely everything. It was. It was uh, an incredible day. I think um, that day John Nichols and Jeff Southby were, were out because they were playing in a state game. I think Keith McKenzie was the coach. 
and uh, it just it just got it. So for some reason, it just got out of hand. Uh, I think I was one of the first to get reported. I was playing on Laurie Maloney, and he kept grabbing me, and I think inadvertently he grabbed me a bit low, and I swung around and, and to put him out of the road, and I probably hit him a bit hard. It was, yep. wasn't anything uh, nasty. Well, I didn't think it was anything too nasty, <laughs> but I got reported. And what did that start? That uh, would have started all manner. Then, then Ron Andrews went crazy, and uh, Philip Pennell, and oh, just blokes were going down like nine pins. It was really, it got really nasty and it was um, actually got pretty silly. When Essendon and Carlton met the second time round, there were some old scores to settle. Field umpire Ian Robinson had his hands full as he sorted this tangle up. In a marathon sitting in the league tribunal, eight players faced 11 charges. Carlton's Rod Ashman and Rod Austin got four weeks. Philip Pennell, two weeks, and David Mackay, a reprimand. Of the Essendon players, Robin Close and Laurie Maloney got two weeks, with Ron Andrews and Neville Fields cleared. In the second encounter for the year, Carlton won the fight and the match by 80 points. The Blues kicked a record 14-1 in the second quarter and still had time to brawl. But uh, fortunately, it, it took a few of the other players. Uh, I was off the ball and I was able to grab a few marks and kick a few snags. Immediately, McClure, a big kick down towards the forward pocket for the Blues. He's got the Mackay underneath that lot and he will be awarded the mark. Mackay getting for position, he's got it. He actually bumped Maloney out that time. Bit too tall for Maloney. As Mike said before, he must be giving him about five inches. Mackay again, a fire for the goals. It looks pretty good again. Carlton in front. Into the forward zone, Mackay's in front there. Up he goes, comes down with him. I think he could be playing it. Was David Mackay. Great aerialist. He is no more than 30 metres out, directly in front, kicking to the eastern end or out of goal, he kicks, and it's through. Aspen drives the ball up to that forward pocket. They're all flawed, look at that Mackay getting out. He's grabbed the mark by Gully, can this oh. fella get off the ground? So that was your career high by a fair oh, by far. Yeah. Eight goals was more than I'd ever kicked before. Was it eight straight? I can't, I can't recall now, but... But obviously you were seeing him well, and Aiden the ball was went straight. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And I think the bonus was: didn't you escape suspension in the aftermath? I did. I got off on a good behaviour bond, which was, um, you know, I was very lucky because of, you know, I think a few of the other Carlton players got two and three weeks. Good behaviour bond, eh? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Don't do that anymore, do they? So at the end of the following year, 1976, you've just been knocked out in straight sets, Carlton. You've you've won the two flags individually. You're 27. I think you've played 170-odd games by this point. It has been a whirlwind career to this stage, Swan. You wanted out, though, didn't you? Were you burnt out mentally, or did you just want to change the scene? What was the origin of the decision for you to want to go to, to WA? Uh, I just wanted to change the scenery. I, I, you know, I wanted to probably try my hand at, at um, dabble in coaching as well. Yep. So um, originally I signed with Glenelg, but uh, that fell over. Um, but then um, Subiaco came on board and offered me the opportunity to go over there. So uh, I actually actually went over uh, without a clearance, um, and I did did a pre-season. Brian Doog was the coach. It was uh, he was using the Kennedy Commando tactics. Yeah, I'm lucky I haven't got uh, carpal tunnel syndrome from carrying bricks around the uh, the Subiaco Oval. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of other players probably have. But it was um, look, it was an interesting experience. I was I was appointed assistant coach to Brian Doog. Uh, Vinnie Cattaggio and Johnny O'Connell, my former former teammates at, at the time, were there, and uh, teammates later on. So uh, it, it had a bit of a Carlton flavour, but uh, look, I enjoyed the experience. 
and probably confirmed to me that I didn't really want to be a coach. Yeah, yeah. So just rewind a touch. In the negotiations with, obviously, Glenelgan and eventually Subiaco and, and agreeing to terms with them, was that all done in secret? I mean, did you tell Carlton you wanted out at this point or were you doing this all, was this all clandestine? Um, yeah, it probably was. I, I, I um, probably told Carlton after that I'd already signed with Subiaco, which was the, the more serious one. And how did they told, react to that news? Um, they weren't that happy. Uh, but then, you know, I moved all, all of our um, household goods and that. We moved over to Perth and I'd bought a house in, in Mount Hawthorne. And this was all before letting them know? Oh, no, no. They knew oh, once, right. once I'd got there because I'd obviously was, it was part of the pre-season yep. training and I was involved with that. And um, Subiaco kept negotiating with Carlton to try and organise a, organise a uh, clearance, but it just wasn't forthcoming. So how did it work back then? Did you have a contract in place at Carlton for a period of time or were you just forever tied to Carlton until they sanctioned a clearance? There were no contracts. No. I, so remember, was... I remember talking to Jack Rout once. I said, Jack, I want a contract. And he said, Macquarie said, uh, a contract is a two-way vehicle. It'll be just as hard on you as it is on us. And I said, a handshake will do me, Jack. Yeah, yeah. Well, so this is evidence case in point, isn't it? Yeah. That, so they would have had to sanction the release for you to get to Subiaco or Glenelg or wherever you wanted to be going. Yeah. Who did you have to tell at Carlton first? when you, that, That's a tough conversation, I'd imagine. Uh, I'm trying to remember. It might have been Jack Rout because he was sort of a bit like a father figure to me. He was, uh, he was a good friend of our family as well. So, uh, But then Lloyd Bendel, who was, a, who was a, a friend of the family, came over when we were over in Perth and he said, look... Uh, we want you to come back. Uh, we'll make it worth your while. I don't think it was in, too much in terms of financial benefit, but uh, he said, we'll organise your transfer, your, all of your goods and the transfer and your job and the rest of it. So It was a big story at the time, wasn't it? The it, media were in a bit of a lather about it. I know some stories written and a bit said. Well, it just wasn't working. And it, like I'd done a, a pretty solid pre-season and I was you know ready to go. And I'd, I think... Um, I was I was runner in one of the games. I think it was Subiaco playing East Fremantle when you couldn't play. When I couldn't play, yeah, and that made it worse to be actually out on the ground and not being able to, um, you know, you could you could sort of coach when you were when you were runner, but you couldn't. Um, not being able to play just was so frustrating. And they got when Lloyd Bendel came over and had a chat to me. He got got me at a weak moment and said, uh, "Look, why don't you come back?" And, Fortunately, I did come back, and uh, uh, the rest is history. It is, and we'll get to that history in a moment. But how far into the season was that? Like, how far were you prepared to push it? It was only two or three games. I think it was probably only the second game. Did you give thought to just sitting out the entire year to prove a point? Were you that angry at a stage? or? Well, I, I was frustrated, yeah. said, because I'd done the pre-season. And, look, I was, it, it's pretty tough in Perth when, you, when you're doing a pre-season, and particularly, uh, you know, the, the grounds were harder and... And, um, look, conditions were right and I just wanted to play. And not being able to play was frustrating and that made it easy for, easy, easy for me to make the decision to come back. Fascinating time. You're listening to This Is Your Journey. It's thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. There's more to come with the Carlton legend, David Mackay, after this. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives.
Hello, it's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Journey. It's all thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. We've been joined today by Carlton's four-time premiership-winning Hall of Fame legend, David Mackay. So, David, the five grand finals you won four, including 79 and 81, when you did obviously decide to hang around at the blue. So you finished with a flag as well as essentially starting with one in, in 69. But did after 81, did David Parkin, who was the coach at the time, did he did he try to convince you into playing on into 82? He did, didn't he? Oh, he definitely did. He tried. <laughs> he visited visited our house a couple of times, but uh, look, I, my ankles were uh, were shot, and uh, look, I had real problems in my last year of playing. I, I in pre- preparing for games, I, I suppose it was actually during games. I I'd uh, see the ball and say, "Look, I can, I can, I knew I could mark it, but I was being outmarked, and it was affecting me mentally. I just couldn't sleep before games. I was worrying about it." And, uh, <sighs> It just became too hard, and uh, as a result, I thought, well, look, I was really lucky. I played in the 81 grand final, as it turned out, uh, but um, I knew I'd had enough. Carlton playing with a lot of confidence and looking at the winners for 1981 as we go for a short pass that time and a mark to McCoy. Players that have been out of the picture are now starting to come into it too. That makes it uh, a little bit upsetting from the Collingwood point of view. I think that's the thing about the Carlton side. They can be down for a long while, but they've got that talent. There's the kick by Mackay. It's a beautiful kick, and that one would seal the doom for Collingwood, I would say. So Collingwood uh, really in trouble now. That's uh, two goals for Mackay. And we spoke about the warm-up me- um, you know, techniques of Ron Barassi from back in the day, the kick-to-kick. But Jezalenko's first coaching stint, so 78, 79 as captain coach, of course. The focus on fitness became the stuff of legend. Oh, you were doing things, some crazy things at training, weren't you? Oh, just run-throughs, like 100, 100 run-throughs. It was just, you know, blokes were being violently ill on the side of the ground, you know, over the fence. It was just really tough training. And uh, basically his rule was that if you get beaten... He'll pay for it next week, and it became such a such a situation that we were actually frightened to lose. So, um, so it worked. It worked. <laughs> I'm not sure how long it would work for, but it certainly worked that year. And because uh, he started in, in when he took over halfway through '78, uh, and then '79, he was um, look. It was it was an interesting philosophy. Uh, it wasn't one that any of us really enjoyed, but uh, yeah. it was successful. And um, he basically, you know, gave you a job, and you basically had to do it. So was was it a hundred, a hundred, 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 hundreds? That was that was really really tough, <laughs> and we used to do uh, you know runs around the runs around the, the Royal Park or Princess Park, and we used to call it um, a new form of mathematics: sprinter, sprinter tree, jogger tree. Yeah, <laughs> and you had to. No, when you sprinted, you really had to sprint between trees, and there's quite a lot of trees around Princess Park. So uh, plenty of places to hide though behind those trees, and shortcuts to be had. There, and all there was no stuff. hiding. <laughs> had spotters out to make sure you everyone was doing it properly. So amazing, isn't it? And that was the world of sport days too, wasn't it? Like he'd he'd go on from time to time, I think, as a guest, and you boys would all watch, wouldn't you? We did. We used to watch from the players' room. We had a players' room after Sunday training, and yep. We'd uh, watch, and he basically said, "I give the boys a job, and if the boys do the job, we win. If they if we do, they don't do the job, we lose." And <laughs> the job was win, win at all costs, because otherwise you'll pay for it next week. Not a sophisticated, uh, not a sophisticated tactical uh, technique, plan. but it was um, very effective for us. Yeah, right. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? The, if the boys adhere to my plan, we win. If they don't, we we lose. Exactly. Princess Park, when it was rocking, I mean, for those too young to know who are listening at the moment, like a suburban venue like that, well, what a place to play. Magnificent ground. It, it had a good surface, except for one year when they tried to resurface it and they uh, used a bit of some bricks that uh, used to cut your knees up. But look, it was a lovely ground. It just, for me, it was just the right size. The uh, the Heatley stand really was, uh, 
you know, was the mecca for uh, for Carlton supporters. They'd sit there, and obviously the George H. Harris stand, yeah. the uh, social club stand, was terrific, and the Gardner stand. But they were look, it was just a a wonderful place to play, and I think all Carlton players, because you train there, but you really felt like you were at home, and it gave us a significant home ground advantage. Always kick to the Eatley end? Kick to the Eatley end. The last, last quarter? quarter. Yeah. Golden rule? Yeah, absolutely. So what did you say there about laying the turf? Bricks, did you say? Oh, they, they brought in some, some turf uh, or some um, some dirt that, that had some, some fairly sharp protrusions in it. Did you own it? It did knock us around for a couple of years, but it soon settled down, and it was okay after that. Hadn't been sifted through, probably? Hadn't been properly sifted, for sure. So after your last game, which was, of course, a successful one, as you say, the 1991 Grand Final, you weren't lost to the club, and I, I would miss something if I ran through all of the hats that you've worn there. But what did you do post-playing career, and can you take us through some of the jobs that you did at Carlton after you hung up the boots? Uh, well, I suppose the first one I did, I was a, I was a team manager for the under-19s with Trevor Keogh, and that was for a little while. And then after that... Um, I worked with the ABC for a couple of years. Then Jeff Southey was appointed coach of the under-19s. Yep. And Jeff and I coached, well, he coached and I was the assistant coach uh, for a couple of years as well. So that was, uh, look, it was an interesting experience. Um, but, yeah, but then after that, um, I probably became, a, I went back to the ABC and probably became a little critical of the club, uh, of, its, of its probably emphasis on the, the corporate side of things at the yep. expense of uh, some of the other things. But, look, that, it was... It was interesting times, but it wasn't then until um, till later that I actually got onto the board. Yeah, now the path to getting on the board, I mean, you weren't the only one. You were among those critical, I suppose, of you know John Elliott's hold on the presidency at the time in, in the early 2000s in that you wanted, correct me if I'm wrong here, but a, a democratic process or an election to even take place at that time. You thought that his time was, was done, or if it wasn't done, then at least proper process had to be followed. Yeah, that was that was that was basically what we were trying to achieve. Look, Elliot uh, had done a terrific job. He'd won a couple of premierships, and um, uh, but uh, look, they'd, they'd made some strange decisions. They were um, back-ending contracts, and really financially, we were in deep trouble. And I remember the first first I was on the board for three years, and most of the board meetings were how we how we can generate funds and save funds. We really didn't have much time for football because. Yeah. Um, the club was was teetering on insolvency, and in fact, if it wasn't for the um, letter of comfort that the league gave us, uh, we probably would have would have been declared insolvent. And I remember Bruce Matheson saying a couple of times, "Hand the keys back to the AFL; they've done this, this, that to us because not only did we lose our draft picks, but we got fined close to a million dollars." Which at the time was an extraordinary figure, wasn't it? An incredible figure, when particularly when we were already broke. So. Uh, it was uh, it was it was really tough times, and uh, Ian Collins had to negotiate with players and try and get them to uh, take a take a, a reduction in uh, their contract fees. All really tough stuff, and um, it was it wasn't pleasant, and that's why I've I've been wrapped with the um, successive presidents, particularly Mark Ledudesay, and more recently with um, with Luke Sayers, how they've really turned the club around, that got membership really rolling. And the redevelopment at Carlton at the moment is just something special. Yeah, it is really, um, you know, it's it's the the play, playing facility, the player training facilities are just uh, without peer at the moment. Probably one of the best in the competition. And obviously that happens as, as clubs re- do their redevelopments. But Carlton's is certainly at the peak of uh, the, of its. Um, arrangements at the moment might have something to do with the way the boys are playing. Yeah, yeah. And you, you mentioned Ian Collins, who, of course, was the, was the president at the time that you served as a director under, if you like. And you paint a picture of how hard the time 
was for you and the board. I mean, was there ever a time where you were of a similar mind to Bruce Matheson that you thought, geez, maybe we can't get out of this? Did it get that dark? Well, it was only the letter of comfort from the league that I think gave the rest of the directors the comfort that, like, you know, as, as a director, you've got uh, financial responsibility. And uh, we were concerned that if, if we were insolvent, that, you know, we could be sued by creditors. So um, that letter of comfort from the league really gave us that, uh, I suppose, that comfort yeah. that um, we were covered if there were any, that we could meet our obligations as and when they fell due. And then you watched, obviously, as they, they paid off the debt that was, for a while, as you say, might have been insurmountable, and now they're in a, as good a position as, as they've ever been. Yeah, and particularly with nearly 100,000 members, or maybe more than 100,000. It's incredible. Like, we were we were shooting then for 50,000, half the amount. Yeah. Uh, and and probably we weren't giving much back to them in terms of uh, wins on the board because, you know, membership is very hard to sell if, you, if your team's not playing well. Uh, but when you're playing well, it's fantastic. And I always think that the AFL were pretty uh, pretty tough on us and pretty stupid in some ways because uh, you can see what happens when Carlton are playing well now. You can draw 80,000 uh, crowd for a normal, for a home and away uh, game against a good team. Mm. So it was like, for the AFL, as cutting off a revenue stream was like cutting off one of their own arms. And for, for some strange purpose, because, you know, we we said that any of the... Any of the um, uh, contractual arrangements that were done before uh, we we came to power in the, as the board uh, were all all open and you know everything was above board and we were going to continue we were going to you know operate like a uh, a proper football club but they didn't listen and uh, the penalties were still applied. Just coming back to Princess Park as a venue or Icon Park as it's now known, of course, I mean it's something that's often pined for, but in reality you probably think it will never happen. But a return to suburban. Venues, it is a shame, isn't it? Like if you go over to the English Premier League and you watch some of the biggest clubs in in world sport play in their home stadia still, and I know the population and the money's a factor as well, but geez, it is a shame that we've lost the Windy Hills and the uh, Princess Parks and the Victoria Parks and those great iconic suburban venues. I think I think of all the, all the those that you mentioned, Carlton probably was the, the best venue because you know it had good stands and it had good parking outside. And I know when Bill Kelty was on the on the commission, he he was keen to uh, get a, um, a rail spur because there was a rail spur that came around the back of the ground and ended up near the bowling club. Yeah, right. And um, he he thought that you know that they could uh, they could actually set that up and make it particularly a game for um, when when a Melbourne club was playing a, a lesser lesser known interstate club that didn't have the same following. Yeah, it would be a, a boutique type of ground that could have been used for that sort of situation, but. Unfortunately, it didn't happen, and uh, now because as part of the redevelopment, uh, stands like the Heatley stand are no longer there, so it doesn't have the capacity now to, uh, yeah. to be a, a venue. But you know, it can still be used for uh, AFLW and um, you know even even the VFL play their games mm. there. So it's still being used for reasonably high level, well high level football for the AFLW and uh, and VFL, but uh, not for AFL games. David Mackay, thanks so much for joining us today. I mean, yours is such a romantic journey in football, I reckon. The way you played the game, but also the success that you so heavily contributed to. So it's been great to relive some of it uh, with you today, and thanks for stopping by. Thanks, Sam. It's been a pleasure. David Mackay there. You've been listening to This Is Your Journey. It's for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. You can jump online and find them at tobinbrothers.com.au, and we'll catch you the next time we celebrate another great sporting journey.